Well, welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards, and Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing, gentlemen? Doing fantastic. Happy Wednesday, and if you are uh, part of our community here locally, uh, I'd encourage you to drop on by and uh, come and attend our Oasis service. We have a what we call our Wednesday evening Oasis service every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. So uh, we're going through the book of Ezekiel. It's very exciting, especially how it relates to uh, the current Middle East conflict and the nation of Israel and Bible prophecy. Uh, Just great, great, great study. Encourage you to check it out. Also, uh, if you're new to Reason for Hope, this is a Bible Answer program where you, our live stream audience, can ask questions of our well-learned Bible teachers, where you can ask questions about uh, the truthfulness of Christianity, or how to uh, to live the Christian life, how to deal with uh, issues of being a Christian, or even just how to apply a specific passage to your life. So we'd encourage you to join us. You can do so by uh, following one of our live streams. We live stream every weekday, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, for those of you here in the Southwest United States. And uh, for those of you who are not, just look up Mountain Standard Time and you'll figure out what time it is here. Uh, we do have people who chime in and listen from all over the globe. So if you're uh, listening in on the radio, if you want to catch a live stream and ask a question of our Bible Answer guys here, you can do so by going to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson, or you can just go to Facebook and search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and you can find us that way. We also live stream simultaneously to YouTube. Just search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube, and you'll find our channel. If you see that little red icon with the white dove, then you know you have found us. Otherwise, you can just go straight to our page by uh, typing in our URL, which is u- youtube.com forward slash the at symbol, A Reason for Hope 546. We also archive this program on Rumble, so if you want to catch a past episode and you are uh, a fan of Rumble, we have archived a backup copy of all our episodes there, and they're categorized by questions. So the top three questions of that episode are listed in the title. Great way to go through our catalog of questions, and if there's a question you have, we might have already answered it. If not, please join us. And if you do join us on the live stream, just use the comment section to ask your question, and we'd ask that uh, you try to reserve the comment sections for questions so that we can get through them. Otherwise, if there's too much commenting, it's kind of hard, but you know, Whatever, uh, you, whatever you'd whatever you like to do, that'd be great just to join us and, and engage with us. <clears throat> if you want to avoid social media altogether, you can just go to our website. That's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. And you can uh, use the chat box on our website there on the live stream and also ask your questions there. We also have a little prayer button. If you want to make a prayer request, you can do that. And all you have to do is hit the little Watch Live tab when you go to our website. And that's how you can catch the live stream. We not only live stream this program every weekday, but we also live stream all of our services. So our Wednesday evening and our Sunday morning services. Uh, For those of you who may not know yet and uh, watch our services regularly online, we are switching our service times starting Christmas Eve. Uh, Instead of three services in the morning, we will have two kind of going back to the way our schedule was prior to the pandemic. So there'll be nine and 11 a.m. But on Christmas Eve, we will have a Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m. So if you want to come and join us for a Christmas Eve service, that'd be great, and we'd encourage you to do so. <clears throat> we also have an app. So if you're part of our community and would like to keep up the current events, you can do so by downloading our app from the 
Apple or Google Play Store. You can also add our channel to any of the Amazon Fire or Roku Smart TV products. So if you want to watch our stream on a TV or a device or a tablet or something, and you have one of those devices, you can add our channel to your channel listing and watch our services as well as the show. <clears throat> if you want to ask a question the traditional way, just email it to us. You can do so by emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Also encourage you to follow our senior pastor on the X platform, which by the way, you can also use to ask questions on this program. We may not always get to it, uh, every question on that day, but uh, we will make a note of it and get to it within the next day or so. So just hang tight, check out the program, and we'll get to your questions. If you want to follow Pastor Scott on Twitter, you can do so. His handle is at ScottR4H. That's at ScottR4H. <clears throat> Before we take questions today, and uh, rush on over to start our evening service tonight. Uh, we'll take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be present and guiding us. And... I love that. Let's do that. All right. <laughs> All right. Father, thanks so much for your presence here. Lord, what an amazing privilege that you, the true and living God, meet with us. You promised where two or more would gather in your name, Jesus, you'd be here in the midst, and we thank you through the power of your Spirit. You're not only present here with us, but you are literally uh, a heartbeat away mm -hmm. from every person who joins us on the broadcast. So, Lord, gather us close to you. We pray we'd find our refuge in the shadow of your wings. I pray that those who need comforting and encouraging would find it in the uh, awesome truth of your word. We pray, Father, that those who uh, need, uh, well, maybe some stirring up uh, in their life, uh, they would find conviction on this broadcast as your word is shared. But most importantly, Lord, we pray that our focus, our concentration would be on you, the true and living God, and that uh, we would speak your truth, your whole truth, and nothing but your truth. What could we possibly add to that? Not the philosophies of men, uh, but your revelation is what we seek. So uh, speak uh, amazing words to us. And I pray, Father, that uh, perhaps even without intention, the things that are shared here today would be exactly what those tuning in need to hear all over the world. We thank you for being here and for using this broadcast in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Scott. And, uh, you know, I, it's kind of uh, ever since October 7th, it's been almost daily where we do a quick um, sort of prophecy update, we'd like to call it, just kind of looking at the current events and, and how it uh, pertains to the nation of Israel. And uh, it's very, very important that we understand God's biblical plan for the nation of Israel and how it pertains to world events, and even sometimes dealing with some differing views on Bible prophecy, the end times. We'd love to address those with you, but uh, do we have an update for today? Oh boy, do we. A lot, <laughs> lots uh, going on in the Middle East. Uh, we could uh, start out, uh, boy, uh, just uh, pick a number. There are so many things mm. uh, going on. Uh, the uh, war going on in Gaza proceeds apace, but there was a very uh, troubling uh, quote that came across uh, on media today from uh, Major General uh, Rafi Milo, uh, he is the uh, home front, uh, the head of the home front uh, security command in Israel. He said uh, today that a target date for a war with Hezbollah in Lebanon has already been determined. He said that the situation in the north is worse than that in the south. So if you think that uh, once just Gaza gets under control, that that's going to be it, 
uh, once I think Gaza is nailed down, Israel is going to, uh, in essence, go to war with Hezbollah. Uh, one of the reasons for this has been that since uh, the Israeli-Lebanese uh, war that took place, where Israel did control a swath of Lebanon for security purposes, then withdrew based upon UN Resolution 1771, which would uh, cause there to be a no-man's land, a buffer zone between Israel and uh, essentially the Hezbollah uh, guerrillas. Uh, the Hezbollah guerrillas have never honored that. Uh, the United Nations has uh, peacekeepers there that are supposedly uh, keeping watch over uh, this demilitarized zone. But we saw last week that a volley of uh, rockets was launched uh, within 20 meters of a UN peacekeeping uh, emplacement there. So uh, basically kind of like a watchdog that just watches the burglar take all your stuff. Uh, that's basically what the UN peacekeepers do there in Lebanon. So uh, if you think uh, we are seeing this thing begin to wrap up, we've got another thing coming. Uh, some other uh, developments that have happened. Uh, Joe Biden, our president, uh, made a very series, a series of very troubling remarks. And uh, once again, we don't know if these are going to be walked back or not. But uh, he took some particularly caustic shots at Benjamin Netanyahu and his government. He said that Netanyahu was going to have to restructure his government. He said uh, that, among other things, uh, that uh, Netanyahu and Israel are going to have to accept a two-state solution living alongside the Palestinians. Well, I would say that if anything has been established by the events that have gone on uh, in uh, the uh, war with Gaza, Gaza was, in a sense, a trial balloon, believe it or not. It was an attempt to see if a Palestinian two-state solution uh, would be feasible. And so Israel took over the Gaza Strip, uh, essentially in the uh, 1973 war, uh, the Yom Kippur War that took place. Egypt used to administrate it. Uh, Israel took uh, control of it and uh, essentially backed off from control of the Gaza Strip and gave it over into the hands of the Palestinians to administrate. Uh, so adamant were the Israelis about uh, surrendering this particular piece of territory. They actually uprooted uh, a number of uh, settlers that had established uh, uh, farms there, uh, advanced uh, greenhouses and so on, and were producing you know, an incredible amount of produce uh, for uh, the benefit of everybody in that area. Well, as soon as uh, the settlers were forcibly removed by uh, the IDF, believe it or not, uh, the Palestinians came in and destroyed all of these farms, saying they wouldn't have anything to do with such Jewish things, and then set up their own government. Uh, there was a civil war that took place between Hamas, who controls the area now, and uh, the Fatah faction, uh, Mahmoud Abbas's Palestinian Authority, is controlled by Fatah. And Fatah lost and uh, skedaddled back up to uh, the area we know today as the West Bank. So uh, Hamas took over. Uh, essentially set out about the business of not administrating the territory, but using it as a platform for war. And uh, the rest, as they say, is uh, history. Uh, to say that Israel has to accept a two-state solution with a Palestinian-led government, I think is a non-starter for a number of reasons, not the least of which is a uh, news item that ran today. Uh, the results of a poll done by the uh, Palestinian Center for Political Research. Uh, they're polling, and this is a Palestinian group, 
of those in the West Bank, that is not in Gaza, but in uh, the territories that are immediately abutting Israel up to the north, showed that 82% of those in the West Bank uh, consider the October 7th massacre done by Hamas on Israel as being justified. 90% of those surveyed felt that Mahmoud Abbas, who oversees the Palestinian Authority, has got to be removed, and 60% of those surveyed believe the Palestinian Authority should be replaced in the West Bank by Hamas. So if you're going to have a two-state solution uh, with uh, the areas along the West Bank of the Jordan River, notice it's not the East Bank of the Jordan River, like that's uh, some area uh, referring to Israel. This is referring to the uh, territory of Jordan. Uh, If you're going to have uh, a uh, duly elected government in there once Mahmoud Abbas Uh, kicks the bucket and he's getting quite old uh, right now who is going to come in and fill the power vacuum it's going to be Hamas so for our president to make these kind of remarks I don't know if he was just spitballing I don't know if the State Department is going to walk that back but it really seems like uh, following his advice would be a death sentence uh, for Israel Uh, speaking of death sentences uh, the Sheen Beit the uh, Israeli uh, version of our CIA has made it very clear that no matter where the leaders of Hamas go, they will be assassinated. They consider what has happened on October 7th uh, equivalent to the Munich massacre that took place in 1972 at the Olympic Games, where every single individual who was a part of that massacre in Munich was hunted down and eventually assassinated. Uh, They say the same thing is going to be true for the leaders of Hamas, who have been comfortably ensconced in the Gulf uh, country of Qatar. Uh, Apparently, they feel that Qatar cannot guarantee their security because all three of them, all billionaires, by the way, as far as their financials are concerned, have skedaddled out of Qatar and have now relocated in the country of Algeria. I don't know if that's going to get them outside the reach of uh, the uh, Sheen Beit and uh, what Israel is able to do. I doubt it. Uh, Speaking of evacuations, over 100,000 Lebanese citizens in southern Lebanon have been evacuated to the north, I think giving some substance to uh, the warning being given by uh, Rafi Milo earlier that there is going to be a major war between Hezbollah and Israel going on in that particular regions. The Saudis and the United Arab Emirates also came out today saying that they would give no more aid financially to Gaza because they've seen uh, the clips of Hamas essentially taking all this aid and using it for their benefits. There is a a video available not only showing Hamas hijacking Uh, these uh, tractor trailers bringing aid in supposedly for the benefit of the Gazan citizens, but having uh, Hamas members on top of these tractor trailers literally shooting uh, Gazans, Palestinians, uh, who attempt to get close to it and get some of these supplies for themselves. And so uh, I can see why the uh, Saudis and the UAE have backed off from all of that. Uh, That, I think, is a positive development because it's uh, essentially going to be a choke point as far as uh, Hamas continuing on in their nefarious deeds. And speaking of choking, uh, Israel has apparently implemented and begun to implement their uh, channeling of seawater into the terror tunnels in, uh, uh, in, in the Gaza Strip 
Now, this is a very uh, controversial action and might be indicative of some really bad news. Uh, we are told that there are still 135 hostages uh, supposedly held by the uh, Hamas terrorists, uh, most of them believed to be in these terror tunnels. It's been confirmed that 18 hostages have been confirmed as dead. Uh, I don't believe Israel would start this seawater uh, flushing, if you will, of these tunnels. Someone referred to it uh, in a uh, kind of a sarcastic way as colonic combat, if you will. Uh, very graphic image there. But uh, I don't believe they would be uh, flushing these terror tunnels with seawater if they didn't know that uh, the majority, if not all, of these hostages have probably already been dispatched. I don't think they would make this move without that. Mm -hmm. I hope that's not true. <clears throat> I pray that the hostages will be returned and returned safely. But this is another development that seems to argue in the opposite direction. <clears throat> so uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lots going on there in that particular region. Pray for the safety of the IDF. Pray for the Palestinian people that there would be a spiritual turnaround. One of the fascinating things about Psalm 82 uh, that uh, predicts a coalition of nations coming against Israel and attacking them to wipe out Israel, their name might be remembered no more, is that after God supernaturally intervenes, during a time where Israel is like the time of the judges, believe it or not, uh, not exactly at their spiritual high point, but when God intervenes, even those who attack Israel will know that the Lord is the true and living God. And so that is our prayer for the Palestinians as well. Hmm. Well, thanks for the update. Uh, we will continue to try to keep you posted <clears throat> and on, on the edge of uh, what's going on. If any further updates uh, happen, we'll let you know. I read up on that ocean, using ocean water to flood, and it's not as if it's like a flash flood. Oh, my goodness, it's really going to just destroy the infrastructure. It's going to be a trickle down. It's so enormous, this complex. So I don't think people fully realize. The, Over 300 miles of terror tunnels. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, <clears throat> just uh, imagine uh, terror tunnels say, uh, from here almost to uh, San Bernardino. And imagine wow. if the resources, manpower, and engineering skills that were put into those tunnels intended for terror, thus the term terror tunnels, were instead invested into, say, shelters for their citizens whenever Israel retaliated towards their aggression, perhaps upholding and uh, upkeeping the farmlands and greenhouses that Israel left behind them, mm. even though it was not the will of those who originally built them. Imagine if they had literally put any of those resources invested wholly in the destruction, terrorization, and harassment of God's chosen people into the maintenance and the care of their own. Mm. It could have been a little oasis. I mean, I like the way you characterize it. This has been a uh, since 1990, I'm sorry, from t since 2005? Yeah, 2005. Been a, oh, they've been the... <laughs> an independent state with their own government, and the only reason there's been any kind of embargoes is because of the whole sale, uh, smuggling of weapons into the area. So if you have, I mean, if people were smuggling weapons into uh, Mexico daily to launch missiles, missiles into Arizona and Texas, I can guarantee you the United States government would embargo and enclose and prevent anything from going into Mexico. Well, <laughs> maybe I, in 2016. And yet you talk about embargo and enclose. Um, you know, I, I almost uh, blanch a little bit at that description because one of the uh, 
uh, talking points of those who were pro-terrorist. In fact, a bunch of pro-terrorists shut down the 105 freeway in Los Angeles in the middle of rush hour today. Uh, is that, uh, well, Gaza has just been an open-air prison ever since Israel, uh, you know, again, put up the fences and all that. Have you seen pictures of Gaza? I mean, there is a beachfront in Gaza that looks like a walk down Laguna Beach. Uh, Gaza featured a five-star uh, resort, beach resort, hmm. that uh, wealthy uh, people from all over the Arab world, anyway, came and enjoyed. And uh, they have received more aid than the total number of funds that were used to rebuild Europe following World War II. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, again, uh, you hear this propaganda going on. We try to... Uh, be able to tell you the the straight story here as much as possible but uh the, the fact of the matter is um, it, it, every conceivable opportunity has been given to these individuals to pursue peace you, you want the solution to this whole mess have hamas lay down their weapons uh, give the hostages back and sue for peace there will be no more conflict there but it's not going to happen why because it's not political it's not economic what drives them? It is their spiritual convictions as Muslims that uh, drive them to uh, pursue the extermination of the Jews by any means necessary. Mm. So, uh, you know, and if you want chapter and verse from the Quran, we'll be happy to provide that. Mm. By the way, at the beginning of the program, I mentioned that our Christmas Eve services, which is a Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year, I mentioned that we'll have a 9 and an 11 a.m. service, and the evening service is at 6 p.m. I, yeah. miss, I misspoke, so I apologize for that. And uh, our first question for today is a question that we missed uh, a previous episode, and it's from Mike. If there is a sin you keep wanting to do, what is the best course of action? That's a great question. Yeah, uh, the concern that a lot of people have is the assumption on God that if I have a changed heart, that means I'm not going to want to sin anymore. The problem is uh, reality eventually hits people who aren't so consumed with pride that they think they've achieved sinless perfection and have just exchanged one vice for another. Then they end up in this dilemma. Well, was I genuinely saved because of a false assumption on God's part, believing that he made a promise that his word never stated, and saying that, well, if I was truly saved, then I wouldn't want to do these things anymore, then I would be like Jesus in my character, that I would fulfill everything that my pastor or these internet influencers tell me a genuine Christian life is all about. You read that into the Bible, and then you think, what happened? Well, obviously not what I expected, therefore what I believe I am to be, I must not be, and that unfortunately is a Christian. When it comes to the mindset of, I want to sin, that which I do not wish to do, that I do, and that what I hate, that I do, that's uh, an unironic reference to Romans chapter 7, is speaking of someone who is just as much saved as the individual in Romans chapter 5. Now, if that's then the case, and we don't read into the text that, oh, well, this was Paul before he got saved, because no one who has a genuine, notice the qualifier there, genuine relationship with God would ever want to sin again, no, the only reason we do anything is because we want to. The only reason that we want a relationship with God is because the Holy Spirit's created that desire in us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath by nature, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us. So with all of this just being thrown at you spitfire, the only intention I have in the last two minutes of talking is this. Don't 
make assumptions about what the Christian life is, what the Holy Spirit will do in your life, and then think that you must not be a Christian because what was made up about what Christianity is all about, what a saved heart is supposed to be like, don't end up following through. Now, this is where we then go into, well, what is the Christian life then all about? Obviously, read Romans 6.1, it says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In a follow-up to a point that he made in chapter 5, which is generally where chapter 6 starts, right after 5, it made the point about what? Saying, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more that where and as we are still sinners, that we are still trapped in this fallen sinful flesh, that he'll go on in the next chapter, Romans 7, to make a point of describing it as a body of death, literally a corpse that's chained to me as a method of torture in ancient Roman prisons. It was all centered around the idea that God's grace is capable of dealing with our ongoing sin. But do we then use that as an excuse? No. So where is the conflict? Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7. It's acknowledging the fact that we are in that place, that we are still in this flesh that wants to do the things that are not of God, that is by nature still not of God, but now has a new feature, if you catch the illustration. The not only convicting work of the Holy Spirit in drawing people to salvation, that's true for everyone on this planet in one way or another, but the ongoing sanctification, spiritual growth of the believer. And that's what we read in Romans 8. If you want to understand what the promises of God are, past, present, and future, those two chapters, we can basically say the whole book of Romans, but Romans chapter 5 all the way to 8, is clarifying to what we can expect us to be and what we will be, how we need to recognize and see ourselves, and also how God sees us in spite of all of that. If we, and a good uh, parallel passage to read on top of this is First John chapters 1 through 2, but if we don't, again, and I'll repeat the point because it is this important, don't make the assumption that if I'm not just like Jesus, then I must not have him to begin with. Scripture doesn't make that case. When Jesus, obviously, as God, is going to say, you call yourselves my disciples, and yet don't do the things that I tell you to, you don't call me Lord, Lord, and yet do the things I tell you to, how could God say anything less? Is he going to acquiesce to our imperfections, or is he going to speak as he would in his own nature? Yeah. But the Holy Spirit, rightly, is going to talk to us not as we ought to be, but as we are. As the Son's words are clarified, we see what he is like, and we are conformed to that image day after day. But if that's then the case, and going to be the case, where do we find ourselves now? In need of mercy. Hmm. So understand these two things. If first you have the opportunity to say, wow, I've seen a lot of victory in certain areas of sin in my life, and I know that apart from God's grace, that would not have been possible. God's power is being demonstrated there. And you can be, here's our word for the day, thankful for that. But if on the other hand, you find yourself still struggling, stumbling, and even falling into these sins, not because you were trapped into a moral dilemma where you had no other choice but to, no, you did it because you wanted to, because that's just what you've always done then you have the opportunity to say, I'm glad Jesus died for me because I am messed up. You can be thankful for that. 
because God knew what he was getting into when he saved you, to reference uh, Boalette. So remember that, Mike. Remember to forget yeah. <laughs> the sort of things that this world will shove on you in order to, uh, uh, what, what's, what's a good fancy Oxford word for it, to satiate our own pride. And of course, remember what scripture actually says. It acknowledges us where we ought to be and where we are. Both are true, and if you read one or the other, you're going to end up in a trap, either of discouragement like you are, or in a place of delusion, which many others that have communicated these things to you also are. I don't want to be in either. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, Sean. Thank yeah. you very much for the question, Mike. Very, very relevant, very important question. Hey, uh, I've got a couple of uh, questions that have been sent along on our X site. Oh, uh, I don't know awesome. if you've been checking that or not, but I've told people they could uh, DM us on our X site at Scott R4H on the uh, formerly known as Twitter platform. Uh, the first uh, is, is a question from He is My Anchor. Uh, here's my question. Why does the Bible refer to Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings as a man of God? And, in, in, and uh, why does it refer to Ezekiel as the son of man in Ezekiel? Okay, so two questions there. Why would uh, the name of these prophets, instead of calling them a prophet, uh, they refer to as a man of God? Well, as a representative of God, they acknowledge he is human, but as a prophet, he's a spokesman for God. So it's more of a occupational title rather than a mark of divinity. So yeah. where I think yeah. they're going with this, and I'm starting to recognize tones that Muslims like to level, Jehovah's Witnesses too, by the way, about that second aspect. And can you read it again so I don't misunderstand? Uh, why does it refer to Ezekiel as the son of man okay, in that yeah. book? Yeah, I, I, um, don't think, I don't think there's any Muslim overtone to it. But no, 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 that comes and, out yeah. a lot, though, yeah. with yeah. Muslims. Um, yeah. So just be prepared. This is useful. Uh, when the term son of man is used, and this is... Uh, sloganeering term that was popularized by Ahmadidat and other Muslim Dawagandists in the late 80s, uh, where they would minimalize Jesus's divinity by saying that I am the Son of Man, or Jesus's most common title for him. When the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am, right? All of these things where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Muslims will read that as to say he's only human, and for Christians to read into that, that he's divine, well, now you got a problem because you have a human prophet like Ezekiel also being called the son of man, or a son of man at least. So Ahmadidat's slogan was, and Zakir Naik has recently picked it up, God has sons by the tons. So why do you believe that... Oh, oh, forego the accent. Why do you believe that Jesus is God <laughs> if this title is being used for humans and apparently deities, or maybe just another human? And this is the problem. So when we use terms, we need to first examine how they're used and in what setting. In the sense of Ezekiel uh, being referenced as a son of man, the entity speaking to him is undoubtedly divine because it's a angel. <laughs> it is something that is not human speaking to him as if he was a human. He's saying, hey, you human over there. Well, unless you're quoting something from a science fiction show, it would be kind of redundant for one human to call another human. So it's a study in contrast, if you will. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a human, but I'm acknowledging you as a human. Son of man, listen to the words that I have to say to you. It's identifying someone as a human. And note, that is consistent throughout the entirety of the scriptures. But if this one looks like a human, how then are they treated? In Ezekiel's case, he's being addressed as a son of man. Why? Usually because he doesn't know what he's seen. 
And you see this also in Zechariah. You see this also in Daniel. Son of man, I will make known to you right. the vision. Right. Now, in the other stat, there's a term son of man that Jesus uses for himself and sets the context for it. And you can read this in the Gospel of Mark, I believe it's chapter 14, where he's standing before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, or at least the de facto high priest, Caiaphas, challenges him, are you the son of man? Are you the son of the most high? Now, we'll just note the first title that he addresses them. Who do you say you are? Right. And Jesus, despite the fact that you didn't have to do this in Jewish court, says something and is compelled to say something that will incriminate himself. And they make the accusation, what? Are you the son of man? And Jesus qualifies, what son of man? He says, I am. And you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, which talks about uh, the final judgment. And verse 13, it says, I was, walking, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, for the sake of the audience, the Ancient of Days is referenced as the one sitting on God's throne and is being worshipped and ministered to by multitudes, angels included, right? right. So who's that? The, the Father. Undoubtedly yeah. God. Yeah. Just, just speak to the Muslim audience here. Now, if we're looking at that and the, suddenly this figure comes around saying, like the Son of Man, well, what is that term? It looks like a human. At least, let's acknowledge that. Right. But how is he treated in the form of a human? we go to Philippians 2 and see that the name was given to him above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, earth, and under the earth, that all should proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord yeah. to the glory of God the Father. His kingdom will not pass away, spoken in the Old Testament of the God of the Bible. When he has an everlasting dominion and is ministered to, he shares the glory of God. He goes to the Ancient of Days and is treated the same way the Ancient of Days was in that very chapter. He's treated as God, he's acting like God, but he doesn't look like God. Why? He looks like a son of man. We're noting a distinction. Two figures separate from one another, and that's why you said the Father, because the Son was the one who took on human form. See John chapter 1 and verse 14, I believe. So the point being made is this. If someone is given a title, like man of God, how is it used? Well, they're prophets, so they're going to be representatives of him as spokesmen or sharing his word. If we see son of man, like in Ezekiel, how is it used in that setting? It's speaking of someone who looks human, who is limited in their knowledge and is, of course, bound by space and time. But if this son of man is doing something that, according to the Psalms and the prophet Jeremiah, describe only God can do, or in the book of Habakkuk as well, Habakkuk chapter 3, the Lord is the one who rides the clouds. That was, by the way, actually a spoof on a poem that was made about the Canaanite god Baal, where they said that he's the cloud rider, he's the one who brings the former and latter rain, and David deliberately paradised that psalm in order to apply it to the Lord. And what happened? The Son of Man is identified by Daniel as doing what? riding the clouds, doing something only divine entities do. 
in that culture. Then what does Jesus do in the Gospel of Mark? He identifies himself not just as a human, anyone could have seen that, and they wouldn't have killed him for it, by the way, because if Son of Man only ever means I'm a human, then you don't condemn yourself to death in court by saying, yes, I am human, unless it's like invasion of the body snatchers or something. And what happened then? They said, he is blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. Why? Because he specifies what son of man. The son of man right. that is doing the sort of things only God does, is being treated the way only God should be, and is worshipped, which even in a Muslim worldview, and even from a secular worldview, should be recognized as only applying to someone like God. So, if that's then the case, what does it mean? Son of man, they look human. But how is that human being treated? That's how we identify it. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Good job, Sean. Thank yeah. you. Hey, another one on the X platform. So we thought we'd get to both of them. It comes from Chris. Chris wants to know if there is ev any evidence to suggest that Jesus has brown skin. Uh, there are a number of people make claims that Jesus was a refugee, that he was an undocumented alien, and that he was brown skinned. Is there any evidence to support that contention? Well, Chris, I'd say in essence, um, there's no evidence to support either contention, the lily white Northern European looking Jesus or the brown skin quote unquote refugee Jesus. As far as being an undocumented alien, uh, I think that runs headlong into the fact that when Jesus was born, his parents went to Bethlehem to be registered for taxation under the Roman Empire. That doesn't sound like someone sneaking under a fence or trying to uh, get into a territory where they don't belong. Sounds like someone uh, even under the steel-reinforced uh, sandal of Rome is doing their best to follow the rules and be a good citizen. And uh, even during his death, they specified under which jurisdiction he ought to be tried, whether it was Pontius Pilate in Judea and Jerusalem's area or in Galilee, which was Herod's yeah, jurisdiction. So the illegal alien thing sounds a motive, but, but what about Jesus' skin color? Can we know uh, what color Jesus' skin was? Well, we um, would Im immediately say, well, if he was from the Middle East, he probably had brown skin. Well, maybe not. Uh, you know, in Jesus' genetic background, one of the things that is absolutely undeniable is that uh, Jesus was a descendant of David. And uh, we're told something really interesting uh, about uh, King David. Uh, we are told, for instance, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, that uh, King David in verse 12, uh, was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. Uh, the word ruddy in Hebrew, uh, according to the BibleHub.com site and Strong's Concordance, literally means he was a redhead. So David was a ginger. So if you've got that kind of genetic information floating around in Mary's background, his physical mother, well, who's to say that that genetic uh, trait wasn't... Uh, accentuated when Jesus uh, came into this world. And uh, he may well have looked like Ed Sheeran for all we know. So uh, we don't know the bottom line, whether he was fair skinned, whether he was, uh, you know, again, uh, sort of brownish skin, like a typical Middle Eastern or an Arab. Uh, we don't know if he was a redhead. Uh, the, the interesting thing is 
uh, in the eyewitness biographies of the life of Jesus, particularly when we take a look at Luke. Uh, Sir William Ramsey called Luke a historian of the first order in his estimation. There is never an attempt made to give a physical description of Jesus. We're not told he was this tall. We're not told he had this color hair. We're not told what eye color he had. Uh, anything like whether he was uh, slight of build, you know, all buffed out. We, we simply are not told. And there's a reason for that. Uh, the early believers, obviously, the people that were the eyewitnesses, believed Jesus claimed to be God. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, as the uh, dutiful uh, uh, disciples and uh, students raised in the synagogue schools, they were well aware of one of the most pivotal Ten Commandments in the whole bunch, the one that Israel ignored and got in all kinds of trouble about. Mm. You shall not make any false image or bow down and worship it. Uh, and so any kind of likeness, any kind of image of God was prohibited, not only as a distinction between the uh, tendency of idolatry that was uh, running rampant in the world at that time, but the fact that the emphasis was that God is spirit. Those who must worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, any likeness that you could come up with of God is by definition less than who he is. And so those who are writing the gospel accounts and their direct associates who, uh, I mean, Luke wasn't Jewish, but the rest of them certainly were, and Luke drew his accounts from Jewish sources, uh, would not have felt it appropriate to describe Jesus and how he looked. The images of Jesus that we get, uh, most of them come from Byzantine art. Uh, some of the mosaics that we see put together in that particular area, which was a few hundred years after the time of Jesus, uh, the other uh, image uh, source that some will speculate on is that the image of Jesus, the traditional one that we see, was a, an image drawn from the Shroud of Turin, uh, which may have been around at that particular time. I think that's a little iffy, uh, but uh, you know, some people believe that that's the case. Why don't we know what Jesus looked like? Well, for the most important reason, it wasn't what he looked like. It wasn't whether he was tall or short. It wasn't whether he was broad-shouldered or slight of build. Uh, what really mattered wasn't who Jesus was on the outside, skin color, eye color, hair color, you name it. What mattered was who he was on the inside, that he was God, very God, in human flesh. And so for that reason, uh, Chris, we simply don't know. And when we see, I think, uh, people trying to score political points, back up their own political uh, persuasions and preferences by bringing Jesus into it all and make uh, two demonstrably, uh, one demonstrably inaccurate statement that he was an illegal alien. Uh, number two, uh, that he was brown skinned. Uh, we simply, the first can be disproven, the second we simply don't know. So best for us to say those things about Jesus that we do know and leave the rest to speculation. I prefer revelation over speculation, Chris, and that's why I don't uh, hazard a guess as to what, what Jesus looked like. Now, I think we've all probably got an image in the back of our mind uh, of uh, what Jesus generally looked like. You know, I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing if it helps you hang your hat on a few things, but you don't bow down and worship it. You don't say, well, this is definitely what Jesus looked like. The closest <clears throat> we come to a description, a physical description of Jesus, 
is the description that John gives us from the island of Patmos. And that description of Jesus is so over the top and glorious that uh, we couldn't hang a handle on it anyway. And a lot of references to Zachariah. So, yeah. Unapproachable okay. light. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> And also, if you adopt the theology of <clears throat> Nick Cannon, where if uh, you don't have enough melanin in your skin, that shows that you have no soul. Um, good for you, but it shows that your God is based off of your ethnicity, and that was more taken from Malcolm X, who, mm-hmm. by the way, not Christian either. Uh, the mindset of victimizing yourself or associating yourself with marginalized groups in order to give them, quote-unquote, a better position in the hearts and minds of people who share that understand the ambiguity ambiguity, excuse me, of Jesus's quote-unquote appearance ethnically is what makes him accessible to Asians, to, you know, Guatemalans, mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. uh, Koreans, to whoever, because they're not going to say, well, this guy's with our tribe. Well, first of all, he was Hebrew. Let's put that out there, and how the average Hebrew would have looked is probably the best place to go. We can go a little bit off of Daniel, or Daniel David, and Solomon's genetics, since he directly had that lineage, but, you know, my resemblance to uh, great uh, granddaddy uh, Leif Erikson is probably going to be despairing, mm. if nothing else, than by the uh, redhead <laughs> alone. With the point, I, although I do have the red beard, so maybe I got that from him. <laughs> the point being made is this. Skip me. <laughs> yeah, when we're talking about ethnicity as a mark or a sign of whether or not someone ought to be followed, we're already in a non-Christian worldview reading into a very Christian mm-hmm. theme like Christ. If Christ's impact on his immediate followers historically was, there is neither barbarian nor Scythian, no cultural differences, neither Jew nor Greek, no ethnic differences, no male nor female, no gender-based differences, then trying to reestablish those distinctions that Jesus broke down misses the whole point. So who was Jesus? Mm-hmm. It was God made flesh. He came as a biological male, And yet, for some reason, and this is not my quote, men and women both find in him the perfect life that ought to be lived. He was not, you know, a particular uh, ethnic group, and yet every ethnicity somehow finds their way to him in, uh, without the barriers of not being a part of their specific tribe. If we are going to look at Jesus, we need to receive him as he is, not as, listen carefully, we are because that shows that we're just trying to make God in our own image, and that's not positive. It's a good sign when you come across other world religions and start learning their backgrounds on how human-centric they are. Mm, Yeah. Is that image part of the Ten Commandments? One of the reasons why when I went, my mom stuck me in Catholic school in second grade, why that that part of the Ten Commandments was not in the catechism, the do not make any graven images of anything on heaven and earth and do not bow and worship them, those were strangely missing because I used to always wonder when I'd see that in the Bible, but not in the catechism, and yet you've got statues of all the saints. Uh, I have, you know, my mom kissing the feet of these statues. Right. And and you have Jesus on the cross, and I don't see that in Protestant churches. Is there something going on there? (laughs) Well, uh, once again, uh, I I think, uh, you know, you could... Uh, say that there was some selective editing going on. As far as the Ten Commandments themselves are concerned, uh, that was pretty explicit, uh, that you were not to make a graven image of anything in heaven, earth, or under the earth, and bow down and worship it. For the purpose of, yeah. Yeah, and uh, bow down and worship it. Uh, So, 
the weasel words, and again, Adrian, you grew up more in this background than I did, so you can probably tell me better than I can tell you, is they will say, well, we're not worshiping this in the same sense that we're worshiping God. We're just paying homage or respect. Now, you know, I, I guess it seems to me like a distinction without a difference. I mean, I've gone to traditional Catholic weddings where part of the wedding ceremony was that the uh, bride would walk up to an image of the Virgin Mary and it would literally have a kneeler in front of it and the bride would bow down and pray to this particular image. Now they would say, no, they're just praying through it. It just helps them to focus. There was a whole uh, dust up in the early church called uh, the iconographic uh, uh, controversy. Uh, and in the Eastern Church, in the Eastern mm. Orthodox Church, they still will have icons, if you will, images of saints, pictures of Jesus. That's where we get like a lot of these images from uh, because it says it helps them to focus in on the reality of uh, what these things are. They don't worship it, they would say, but it helps them to stay spiritually focused. Mm. Um, you know, I, I get all of the excuses, but if you have to spend 20 minutes explaining to somebody why what plainly it seems like you're doing is not really what you're doing, um, that's why we don't have icons in our church. Uh, that's why we don't have kneelers in front of statues of uh, various saints and dignitaries and even the Virgin Mary. Uh, it just clouds the issue. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think when it comes to what faith and practice are all about, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, we try to keep it as simple and focused as this. Whatever we do in the church, and however we do it, we want to have a scriptural reason behind that. Uh, we don't want to just do it because we're comfortable in doing it. Uh, we don't want to do it just because uh, it's sort of our thing or, or our culture or, or Chuck Smith always used to do it this way, way back in Calvary Chapel circles. We really ought to be able, as especially as church leaders, uh, to be able to give chapter and verse to anyone who asks. Uh, and that's what that passage says. Uh, it is the scripture, not human tradition, not what seems best to us, not what church fathers may or may not have said, uh, but what the scripture itself actually says about this that makes us adequate, equipped for every good work. And part of those good works are the act of worship. So, um, you know, again, uh, I, that's why we stay away from such things. Uh, some people in some precincts, I know of the Roman Catholic Church that I've talked to, will say, of course I worship Mary, and of course I worship this image. What's it to you? <laughs> so it depends who you talk to. Yeah. So uh, once again, you got to get clarity on that. And, you know, the question always comes up, you know, uh, are Roman Catholics saved? Uh, well, I would say that if you are a Roman Catholic and you believe everything that is written in the book of canon law of Roman Catholicism, including the, uh, the determination of the Council of Trent, which says that anyone who says that you are saved by grace through faith alone is anathema or cursed. Uh, if you believe that, I would say you are not saved. You're trying to be saved by works. You're not trying to be saved by the grace of God. And that is a biggie. Uh, and there's a number of other anathemas that were pronounced at the Council of Trent in response to the Protestant Reformation. 
But, you know, again, when you talk to the average Roman Catholic and you say, well, do you believe, you know, why, why, why are you going to heaven? You know, why do you believe you're going to heaven? Uh, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? Well, they wouldn't say, well, you know, I, I did the seven sacraments and, you know, I made my, uh, my last confession and, and uh, you know, ex- received extreme unction and so on and, and uh, you know, followed all these uh, things and did, you know, said the rosary and all that. They'd probably say, well, because uh, Jesus died for me. Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's true. You know, what the church teaches and what I think the average person believes mm-hmm. are oftentimes two different things. So mm-hmm. I think it just uh, enhances a really important point if we get into a conversation like that, whether it's with a Catholic, whether it's a Muslim, or even someone who claims to be a Mormon, mm-hmm. ask them what they really believe about God because what they believe about God and what their church might teach or what their, uh, uh, again, imam might teach are two different things. Mm-hmm. So. Very true. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Don asked a really good question. <clears throat> uh, she asked, I was born again at 19 and fell into unbelief and false teachings for many years, but now I want to come back to God with a contrite heart. But I am confused about the verse that talks about falling away that you cannot be brought back to repentance. Can you please clarify this verse, what it means, and does that mean that I would not be able to repent? Yeah, <clears throat> let me start in uh, Hebrews 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain and comes upon it bears useful herbs, useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So a illustration and a point of contrast is being made by the author of Hebrews in noting, if you receive the water and you are a seed that was intended to bear fruit. If it skips you, you're taken out of the ground and you're replaced with something better. But if you do produce fruit, it's because you received it the first time. Now the it that is being discussed here is usually a a point of uh, stumbling for a lot of people because they stop at verse 8. Problem is the book doesn't end there. Verse 9, but, but, (laughs) beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And they go on to note that you continue in that. So the whole conversation was a point of contrast between those types of people and the audience that he was speaking to. And this is where I think things get settled. If we understand that the book of Hebrews was written primarily to three separate audiences, all from the same ethnic background, that is Hebrews. Right. The book to the Hebrews. Yeah, that that, that that tends to make sense. There were people who were essentially on the outside looking in, people who never knew Messiah, people who didn't want to know Messiah, people who were, in a sense, those who were rejecting Jesus outright, the majority of how Jews present themselves today. These, and that's ever-changing, but note the point. The second is those, or are those, who were aware 
of what it would mean to follow the Messiah, to believe that Jesus was the predicted anointed one who would fulfill roles of king, priest, and prophet all at once, would be God with us. They understood that that was not a legally recognized and protected religion in Rome, and it wouldn't go well with their families who were in the first category. So they were on the fence. They didn't know whether to commit to Jesus, given all that they had seen and heard, hint, hint, and of course, wanting to just stick to what was comfortable, what they were used to. And then the third, of course, were the audience of this passage, those who were serving Jesus as the majority of the early Christians were Hebrews. So here's the point. Who was the audience? And according to verses 9 through 12, we see that it was addressing the third category in comparison to the first. Now this is where people think this is a bit controversial, and since we only have 30 seconds, I'll be brief. The audience is described as those who have tasted the heavenly gifts, partakers of the Holy Spirit, taste the Word of God, powers of the age to come, and then they fell away. Now, does that describe someone who has heard the Word of God, received the Word of God, and then apostatized, meaning falling away, or someone who is simply in the third category, who's just kind of seen this all happen, and of course doesn't uh, have a desire to commit to anything. Well, just like the two types of people who at the end of their lives reject Jesus consciously or by omission. I, I didn't make a decision with Jesus. It's like hanging up a phone on somebody. He's calling you, you either don't pick it up, in which case the phone hangs up for you after a set period of time, or you hang up. Either way, you're in the not category that this passage is addressing. If you have a desire for Jesus, understand 1 Corinthians 12, 3 could not be clear. You wouldn't have that apart from the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't fit into this category. That, I think, is the best way to believe it. Well, thanks for tuning in, and thanks for that, Sean. And uh, Robert, we'll get to your question uh, tomorrow. God bless you. We'll see you then. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.